Building Tools and Operating System with Robert Chile. Welcome to the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast, episode 13. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I am Georg Lohrer, and this is the podcast about realizing and managing your projects within the embedded systems realm. It's where I give you the know-how and teach you the ways to succeed and overcome your daily obstacles and problems in project work. After several episodes with a more focus on organizational and management issues, I wanted today switch back to a more technical topic. Building, maintaining and distributing tools and operating systems in large-scale projects. It's roughly 12 years ago as I have first built my own Linux system from scratch. I mean, I have written my own compilers already 25 years ago, very basic compilers of course, and I'm a Linux user since 1996. But to build an operating system from bottom up is something completely different. If you want to succeed in a project, independent of its small, medium or of bigger size, a stable and reliable operating system and toolchain is mandatory. During my career, I was several times in duty to provide a toolchain containing compile environment, linker, debugger, etc. However, I always get stuck on some intermediate skill level. I never had had the time to dive deeper into these very interesting efforts. And it became even more complicated as the project started to be implemented on different sites, on different hardware platforms, both on host and target. This resulted in very challenging requirements for the distribution of the operating system and the toolchain. As I'm regularly in charge, not only for a particular problem, but also for the technical big picture, I'm always interested in this general support topic, which is very often not taken into account. And therefore, I have invited a real specialist for developing OS tools, providing toolchains, building operating systems. I have the pleasure to welcome Robert Chile. Robert has a very substantial knowledge about building, distributing and maintaining operating systems. He has very verbose insights into the Linux kernel and the Linux operating system in particular. And he is one of the guys I know who is eagerly engaged into the open source community. In his current role, he maintains development tools and open source components for a global mobile network supplier. His main task is to provide running build systems, toolchains, toolsets and root file systems. He has seen and resolved a lot of problems when providing tools and operating systems, especially for large-scale systems and multiple hardware platforms in multi-site environments. We are talking about build systems, root file systems, native and cross-building, we tackle observable problems with distributed environments, we discuss about struggles and multiple hardware platforms, and we give you a close look into the way how well-prepared tools provisioning saves you time and prevents waste. Don't be distracted by some background noise during the interview. We were several times disturbed and have had to switch rooms one time. 
what of course changes the sound and tone due to different hall sensation. Now, do not miss this informative episode. Stay tuned and be inspired. Robert, what are tool set? What are root file systems? What does cross-building mean? Could you explain a little bit, a little bit verbosely for our listeners? So the terminology of these things is somehow different in which group you are, but uh, we typically understand the tool set as a set of components that we put uh, onto our systems. And this set of components together uh, then produce uh, the system uh, so to provide the functionality that we actually want. So for example, Parts of the tool set uh, can be simple command line tools that can be libraries that are needed and several other components that are just useful into in an embedded system or whatever system we are talking about. So then out of these kind of, you could say this one component in this tool set, you could also maybe call a package. Uh, similar to what you know from desktop operating systems that you could install there. And out of these packages or tools or how you ever call them, uh, you can build a root file system. This is the composition of all of, of a set of these packages um, that you need on the target system. So, for example, if you have a system where you need several command lines, you need five libraries and um, some other things, then you just package them together into a root file system, which is just a file system readable by the um, embedded kernel or whatever it is, and uh, so that it can do um, the work that it is designed for. But a root file system does not necessarily is not necessarily limited on Linux. Or no, in, in technically you can do that with any system. I mean, if you, for example, look for Windows CE, I don't know how flexible it is to, to build something like that, but they have the same technology there. There are several components that form a Windows system, and those that you need, uh, you can package together. As I said, I don't know how flexible that system is so that you can put things together and, and remove things. Um, so... Obviously, if the, you talk about open source systems, you are more flexible in changing things. But the principle is always the same, whether you go with traditional embedded systems uh, or whether you go with Windows or with Linux or with whatever. Okay. So that, that, that also means I have in mind, I was working with OS 9, the former microware system, uh, operating system for the WME buses, 68K uh, processors from microware, uh, from uh, Motorola, sorry, um, or, and also QNX, that's still available. And uh, but there, very often the development was done directly on the target. But root file system indicates something different. Well, yeah. So maybe uh, for a traditional embedded system, you might not use the term root file system, but you have a similar component there. Traditional and embedded systems, you just link everything together to one big blob. Uh, and that has, you, you wouldn't talk about libraries maybe anymore because you just have one big software blob there that just does all the work. But in the end, the idea is the same. You have several components and instead of putting them onto a file system, you just link them together. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you wouldn't call it root file system, okay. but it's just the, the firmware. Probably you better use the term firmware in that case. So a root file system 
is kind of a more flexible architecture for a firmware because it's just an abstract container for things and you it's more clarified how to exchange things uh, there but the basic idea is the same it's just maybe a more modern approach to it but in contradiction to what i have said that we in former times we have built the system or the operate the the running part directly on the target system this one is no the root file system in nowadays is no longer built on a target system. It's built on a different system. So that's this so, cross-building. Ah, so, so yeah, maybe that was a misunderstanding yeah. on my side. So um, what is typical for embedded systems is actually that in most of the, uh, most of the time, you don't build anything on the target itself because embedded systems are typically not extremely powerful mm -hmm. machines. Uh, so you prepare everything on some development machines, which these days are typically some Intel machines, whether they have Linux or Windows or whatever. Um, and you just compile your code. And that's actually, and here we come to the term cross-compiling, because typically if you compile something, for example, on a Linux system, you compile it for the system you are running on. But for an embedded system, since you are building on a different system, then you have a compiler that builds the source code into a binary that is actually not working on the system that you are currently compiling on, but uh, it's cross-compiling it for a different system. And that's why someone invented the term cross-compiling, uh, because it's for a different system. And so the more general term, if we don't talk only about compiling, we just say it's cross-building because there are other tasks involved like linking, you might generate some scripts or whatever. and But all of these things you typically don't do for the system that you're working on, but for a different system. And that's what the term cross-building or cross-compiling means. And how does the preferred build system looks like nowadays? So? so an important thing, in my opinion, for a build system is that if you have a complex stack, that uh, the build system actually can build through all the layers in kind of CI approach, um, because if you just build individual components, uh, they have dependencies to each other. And if the user has to go through and figure out, oh, I first need to build that, and then, and then I need to take this and build another thing, um, this is error-prone because the user will make errors there, And if he forgets a step, uh, the result might just be broken. And that's why a, very, a good build system, just you just tell the build system, I want to have this target, and the build system builds everything that is needed to that. But it, it optimally, it does not build things that are not needed to build, and it also does not rebuild things if they didn't change or their, their dependencies didn't change, because that's then wasting your time. It's not incorrect, but it's just wasting time. So you, you mean that, that sounds like there is heavyweight automation ongoing or it's mandatory to have automation to have be that's, successful and effective? That's definitely recommended because the slower you are, the longer your development cycles are. Uh, and one of my experiences uh, is that if the process is complicated or slow, Uh, people uh, tend to skip some steps. For example, you see the same thing when, when you go into test things. If it's complicated to write tests, if tests are running long, 
too long, then what developers typically will do, they will not write tests, they will not run the tests, and that obviously is a negative thing for your quality result. So uh, the thing should go in an efficient way to the result, should produce a correct result, uh, and should not hinder the developer to do it. Okay, but I, I think the most interesting question now is how to achieve that, how to, how to get this kind of, um, of automation, how to get this kind of easiness or, or simplification in the, pro, in, the, in the producing of code and the follow-up test uh, sequences you just mentioned. So basically, it is, in my opinion, it is essential that um, this tooling, this kind of build framework, actually takes most of the tasks uh, away from the developer that can be automated. For example, I said I talked about dependencies before. If the tool can figure out the dependency automatically, it should figure that out automatically because relying on the user specifying the dependencies is almost always going in a very bad direction because this is one of the things that people always get wrong because they don't understand the thing, they are not interested in that stuff. One developer typically looks at his component and is not so much interested about the dependencies to others. And so he doesn't specify that right very often. And uh, those things that cannot be figured out automatically, they should be done in a kind of declarative way. It's extremely important that uh, specifying these things is done in a declarative way for one simple reason. If you have to specify something manually, if you do it in a declarative way in one place, for example, you have a binary uh, or a tool that depends on a library, and for some reason it cannot be figured out automatically that this library is needed. If you just specify once, I need this library, then um, that's good because you just do it once. If you have to... I often have seen build systems where you had to specify there is the dependency and then you had to implement in some make file that if you build that, you need to build the mm -hmm. library before. If all these steps are done manually... There are five to five, six, seven steps that need to be done manually, and typically the developer will at least forget one. Okay. And then there is an inconsistency in the result. And that's why there should be a mechanism where you say, okay, I need that dependency, and the system then knows, okay, if there is this dependency, then I need to do this and this and this and this. And the user should not care about that. And another thing here is that if someone forgets, to specify the dependency, optimally the build system will immediately react with an error. Okay, and yeah. one thing to achieve that is actually um, if you do not specify a library um, as a dependency, it is not visible within the build process. So that if I, as a developer, forget to specify that I need the set lib, for example, as a, as a dependency, um, and then I will what, try to compile, and I actually need the setlib, then it's not visible to my build. And so the compile will immediately fail because the compiler will tell me, okay, there is no setlib here, and so I will notice it. That way, uh, I won't forget the dependency mm. because I will immediately add after the error this dependency information. Uh, otherwise, I will not specify it, and it will work in my workspace because I have the setlib in my workspace, 
Then I will check that in and my colleague will check out only the component but is not aware of the dependencies to the setlib and he will be frustrated because it won't work for him anymore. And that's why it's a good thing to isolate things in, again, we can call about talk about packages here, isolate things into packages and they see only other things that they have declared as a dependency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I want to follow that track with the packages because I run personally sometimes, a long time ago already, into this situation that I used I used code, I said would say code chunks, code parts by provided by someone else. I checked it out and it I was told it's quite easy to build them. You only have to hack in make. But it didn't succeed. It didn't even start. There were some nasty errors, problems with setup and all that stuff. And as I've understood now, if it's done in some kind of packages, you can prevent that. Is it in that direction? Well, there is actually two things. So what you were talking talking about is the package, like, for example, in Linux distributions, there are these RPM packages. And in these things, there are these typically configure, make, install things where you call this configure script and then call make. Um, those things are the build systems of the individual packages. And those build systems might have some checks whether some dependencies might be there. Other packages or other software components might not implement such checks and just fail with obscure errors. And those are the make files or the build systems of the individual packages. But then you, to get these, to build large-scale systems, you need kind of a framework around all these things. So the framework will still call, in the end, the make file. But the framework knows through some specification or some automation that, for example, if you build the package bash, as an example, you need the uh, readline library, for example. And so um, instead of just invoking bash and then failing because the readline library might not be there, The framework knows, okay, someone specified readline is needed, so I put readline into the correct place and only after that start building uh, the package. One important dependency that is often forgotten to think through is actually, for example, the compiler itself. Obviously, for most packages, we need a compiler. And so specifying the compiler as a dependency makes perfect sense. It might make sense to specify this as a default dependency, just assuming that Almost every package will need the compiler, but it should be clear that the compiler is a dependency. And if the compiler, for example, changes, then this has an effect to the package. Um, do these kind of frameworks, I, I just have the idea of that there might be a circular dependency. So as I just mentioned with the compiler, so uh, I know from former times bootstrapping a compiler build means that you build some kind of pre-compiler, which when follow-up builds the real compiler and so forth, you get you, you bootstrap yourself out of the swamp. So uh, is there kind, are these kind of uh, frameworks for building large-scale systems able to, um, yeah, to resolve circular dependencies, or should they not occur at all? Well, there are actually two approaches to that problem. Um, or maybe even three. So one uh, approach is, which is typically used not so much in the embedded world, but in the when you build native systems. On a native system, 
you really have that problem that you cannot avoid some of these circular dependencies because you are building the system on themselves. So you actually, in the beginning, need a compiler from somewhere. So in the end, there is a circular dependency that through some hoops, basically the compiler has a dependency to itself. Um, so you need to have a working system to start with on these mm. systems. And so what these systems typically do in frameworks, for example, there's, an, there's this example of this, what, what uh, this OpenSUSE distribution does. They have this OpenSUSE build server. They have a strategy there um, that they just accept these circles and build in these circles and just monitor whether there are still changes. Ah, okay. So, so they uh, they look into one thing, which is also an essential thing, which we haven't talked about yet. It is very good for build systems to have reproducible results. So, if you build the same thing again and again from the same source code, it should produce exactly the same binary. So that's, by the way, one hint. Please do not put timestamps in your code which says this was built on this date. If it's exactly the same code, it actually should not matter when it was built. It should matter that it was this source code, but it should not matter when it was built. And if you avoid these timestamps, and uh, that was one of the things that they took a much care on when they built this OpenSUSE build server, is to avoid these things. If you avoid these things and you go in this circle, after often even after one iteration, maybe sometimes after two or three iterations, the solution converges to a binary. And then you can say, okay, there's a circle, but there's actually no change going through the circle once. And so I can actually stop here because I do not expect further changes. That's one approach to resolve these things. Obviously, there needs to be a fallback because if some package is not reproducible, it will would build forever. Mm. And so there's typically kind of a short circuit. If I have run through the uh, loop more than 10 times or something like that, then I just stop and just say, okay, whatever. This is the approach, as I said, which is typically used for native systems, for systems where I built for, where I don't build for my own system. I can really resolve these cycles in the sense that I just say, well, actually, the compiler that builds for the target is actually built with a different compiler because the compiler itself runs on the host system. So obviously, you still need a compiler to start with, if we take the compiler as an example. But you can just define a minimum requirement where you just say, I need any C compiler, whatever it is, as long as it follows a reasonable old C standard, with that compiler, I compile a kind of a bootstrap compiler to level up to, to the requirements I have. And with that bootstrap compiler, I maybe build the final compiler. There might be more iterations in there, but... I can avoid these cycles. And that's important in these things. Whenever you can avoid these cycling systems, because they are just very hard to track down and they are slow. If, so if you have the opportunity to avoid cycles there, 
and uh, try to to have kind of acyclic graphs yeah. okay. uh, to build up to your target. Yeah, okay, because then it is very clear. And a good build system that is designed for that would actually scan for these cycles. And if mm -hmm. it detects such a cycle, either abort immediately or sometimes you just say, okay, if someone built a cycle, I accept the cycle and just break it at a random point, but at least give a warning about it so that the user knows this is somehow broken here but I will can still continue building if you like. Um, but obviously for a production system, you would prevent these cycles then. Okay, so that, that means so we are already at the point where we have built something. What are, you already have mentioned it slightly, what are the main challenges when building this kind of tool set and systems via cross-functional system and cross-building and all that stuff? This, again, depends a bit on what complexity scale you are working on. These days, typically, uh, you often build systems with components that are outside your own control because systems are very large. So that's often why these days, typically, a lot of embedded systems are created out of Linux components out mm. there. And so it's important. You obviously won't know every single line of code there because there are millions of lines of code for example in projects you easily get to more than 100 million lines of code if you build them with linux systems so you won't understand them all but you need to have a good overview of what you are using there um, and then track them and, and you also it's also important for you at least if you build a, a tool that you want to sell to your customers, that you don't go down the path that you say, oh, these are open source components. We are actually not responsible for them because your customer probably won't accept that. So you need to understand the code so that you, if there's a problem, your customer or you yourself find a problem, that you can quickly go into the code and understand it enough to at least track down the problem. And maybe with uh, the help of the community or you, uh, by doing it yourself, fix the problem. Mm. And so to do that, to look into a large amount of foreign code, there is one essential uh, knowledge or the capability that you need as a software developer. Uh, it is that you need to be quick in reading and understanding foreign code. Mm. Because a lot, what I realized, a lot of software developers, they wrote their own code, they understand their own code, they can work within a small group, but as soon as they get a large amount of foreign code, they are somehow lost. So this is kind of a special capability that you need um, to, to work on that. And here, for a strategy for your company, it also depends on where you want to go. Because often you might not have these people. So you need to decide if you just need some system where it is working on. It might be a good idea to choose a build system and, and maybe already pre-packaged uh, tool set by using, for example, whatever Debian packages out there or some RPM packages, whatever if we talk about Linux systems again, and this is just fine for you, maybe. 
This has the drawback that you might not be so flexible to fix things uh, or adapt it to special needs. If you want to be on the edge and want to provide a very good Uh, experience for your customer and, and just adapt to all his requirements in an optimal way, something from the stock might not be good enough anymore. And then you need to adapt it or maybe even build some components on yourself because they better fit your needs because you have special requirements. But then it's also essential that you really have the people because if you don't have the people that can do that, Uh, then you are lost in that situation. So that, that means essentially you need developers, you need uh, software engineers who are capable to not only understand their own code, that might be the easy part, but also code written by other persons, even outside of the own coding guidelines, out of their own thinking, out of their own environment and all that stuff. Yeah, so actually in, in my job where I'm doing these kind of things, I'm actually, I would say, maybe even more than 90% of my time not writing own code. I'm looking into code from others, trying to quickly analyze what they are doing and what they wanted to achieve. And then I need to adapt to also their style, because if I fix something in some open source component, I'd, and I don't want to maintain this change for myself, for all the time, but I want to put that back into the community so that that my change actually goes to the upstream project and I don't need to maintain it myself anymore. Then I need to understand what was the intention of the original author. How do I fix it in a way that it is within line of the original project? Because otherwise, the upstream project will ju not just adapt uh, my change. For example, if an upstream project is completely written in C, and I personally might like C++ much more, I could do this small new feature that I just need in C++ because, I mean, they are compatible to each other. But it's actually not a smart idea because I will never get that upstream because the original author, for whatever reason, chose to use only C. So if I write it in C++, he will not be interested. And uh, that's why I need to adapt to the style. I need to adapt to their coding style and to, to their project goals. And if my change is completely different from the project goal, then I will have to maintain it myself because they will not be interested. So, but if, if, if you say that there are, that you, that you are, there are 90% of your time you are using for studying other code, uh, what about the regular developers? Are we, I assume we are not doing that in that style. We have a different style, but we might run into, this, into the same pitfalls. Yeah, so, I mean, there are several stories here. So, first of all, in, if you build embedded systems, there are developers that write the proprietary parts of your code um, that you will never make open source because they are intellectual property of your comp company. And they are completely developed in-house. Um, those people also need this help sometimes because they might make errors. And if you have the knowledge to read foreign code and have, the, have knowledge, you are often pulled in to help them. What I also often have to do in my position is 
help other people with these capabilities in their code. Because I'm also maintaining uh, the compiler there. And one thing that very often happens is if there is a new compiler version, there people have issues with them. And they typically say, oh, there's a bug in the compiler. Uh, it's broken because my code does no longer compile. And actually what I found out, again, maybe in... That's just a wild guess in my maybe 90% of the cases. There is actually not a problem in the compiler, but there is a problem in the code. I mean, there are still 10% left where there is something to fix in the compiler. But in these other 90% of the cases, I have to look into their code. And then I often see that there might be some coding error, which uh, just means that they did not follow the C or C++ standard correctly. And they just did something which, according to the standard, is illegal. And while the old compiler might have tolerated that, there is a new optimization or something in the new compiler so that this leads to a compiler error or even, or what's even worse, if, if the compiler goes through and later the code just misbehaves in a strange way. And uh, then it needs to be analyzed and there is... I need to look into their code. I need to understand their code. I need to understand their intention, what they wanted to do there. And then I can often see what they actually did wrong. Um, that they, for example, just did some casts on some variables which are not allowed. Uh, and so the compiler just produced code. Because, I mean, in these situations, the standard often has this sentence which says, in these Uh, if the user does this or that, the behavior is undefined. And that's exactly the problem. In the old compiler, the compiler just by pure luck did whatever the author wanted it to do. But since the behavior is undefined, the new compiler might do a different thing. And so the uh, user is frustrated, especially since it worked before. And so I need to assist them and it also coach them a bit on how to implement that properly. That's also one of the tasks that you need to do in that area very often. And then if we maybe go back to what is essential to the build system. Yes. Um, there is one more thing which is extremely helpful. Um, a lot of companies actually produce their software for different hardware platforms. Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. And okay. what, in my opinion, a lot of companies do wrong there is that they have one software stack for platform A, one software stack for platform B, and one stuff, uh, stack for platform C. And while you can do that, this is, first of all, seems to be a waste of resources because you do everything three times. Um, if you build everything from one source, you have several advantages. The obvious advantage is you just do it once. The second advantage is the more platforms you build your software on, the more subtle bugs you will find, especially these problems that I talked before, when there is an optimization thing that in some compilers might do the right thing and some compilers might do the thing that is technically still right, but is not expected by the developer. So if you build on multiple platforms, you get a similar effect. Even the same compiler might do a different thing with broken code on an Intel platform and on an ARM platform, for example. 
And so if you build on multiple platforms, you find a lot of errors. Another typical set of errors that you find is often code is not 64-bit safe. You develop it for a 32-bit system and it won't work on 64-bit because you, for example, cast a pointer to an integer or funny things like that. Or you make assumption about, assumptions about endianness of the machine. Mm. And so if you build on multiple platforms with different endianness and uh, different sizes of pointers and stuff like that, you harden your code because there is, will, mo most likely there will be one platform where you figure out that there is something broken. And then you make your code more generic, more portable. Okay, but that, that would mean that also the developers are capable to provide this kind of multi-platform code. I, I think it's, it's not possible for you to do all the consulting at that point. That's, but it's that's right. That's something, and this is obviously a drawback with that approach. Obviously, if a developer does not understand these kind of things very well and is working on, for example, a 32-bit little Andean machine and he's working on common code, he might test it on that machine, he might break other machines by accident by introducing new code that is not compliant. But uh, there is one thing, if you do that for a certain time, in the beginning, those developers will have problems but they will learn very quickly uh, these things, what is important to look at. And so one thing that I learned, so even in projects that I worked before where we just had one platform, it was an advantage um, to also build a second platform, even you never sell that to any customer, but just for verification. Or what we also did in previous projects is just use a different compiler. We were never interested in the results of that compiler. We just did it because we knew this compiler is extremely picky for the static analysis. So we misused the compiler in some sense as a static analysis tool. So in that way, you can misuse different platforms as an analysis tool. There is an interesting story, which is not from a project I was involved in, When Microsoft initially developed the Windows NT kernel, what they did at Microsoft is they developed the Windows NT kernel on a platform which they knew from the very beginning will never be ready for the market. They will never make money out of that. They intentionally did not build it on the Intel platform initially, but on some other CPU I currently can't remember. And the idea behind that was that they wanted to have an abstraction between the hardware and the mm -hmm. software. And that way, they initially made probably the same errors that they wrote the code too much attached to the system. But since there was still this required step to port this initial software to the Intel platform, they figured out these issues. And so they could start with a higher quality level than if they would have started with the Intel platform mm, initially. Right, initially. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that this actually was successful because what most people actually don't know, this NT kernel was initially commercially available on the Intel platform, on the PowerPC platform, on the MIPS platform, yeah. and uh, I think then later on the Alpha platform. Um, and so apparently they could port that code 
relatively easily, while it's much harder if you have code that is written for a specific platform. And that's why it's a recommendation from my side to consider that as well. Yeah, great. Uh, for, for all the other, for the, for the guys who are quite young here and they don't remember the Windows NT at all, so this was the, f I would say it was the first Windows operating system release which was used heavily in the industry. So it was, has a broad distribution and before Windows 7 it was the major platform which wasn't used in, the, in some kind of industry. But later on, so it's already, how long is it? Already eight years, ten years? I think so. Uh, I think the Windows NT was something 1993 or 1994, uh, okay. something like that, Only, the initial yeah. versions. But I'm not perfectly sure about these yeah. days. And I mean, you have to consider that these days, when you talk about Windows 7 or even up to Windows 10, they are based on this Windows NT mm. platform. Windows NT was basically the, the technology that they used to get away from this DOS platform because before these old Windows versions up to Windows 95, 98, Windows ME, they were all based on DOS and there are all these jokes about Windows continuously crashing. And that was basically because the foundation was really bad because it was just I mean, that was, off, yeah. that was a bad design. It yeah. was not a multi-user operating no. system and, 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 and there was no real good isolation in there. Um, and that's why it was extremely unstable. And Windows NT was a parallel, parallel um, line of products, which was initially targeted only for the uh, professional user, uh, which was a completely new operating system mm. And uh, at one point in time, it just made the other line obsolete. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Robert, very worthwhile content, very, very valuable hints here by you. Thank you very much. But first, uh, or at last, I wanted to ask you, do you have two or three particular hints you want to cast out for the guys outside um, when dealing with large-scale tool sets and root file systems and products, what should be considered? So one thing that I said before already, think about what do you want to achieve with your project. If you just want, a, want any platform and you, the platform is actually not of strategic interest for you because you more or less just want to run some application and the application doesn't care much what it's running on, then it might be much more efficient for you to just take something from stock, uh, which is working well, which is tested well. If the platform has a strategic interest for you and you want to react quickly on customer requests, you at least need to start understanding how this system is working. Whether you build your own system then or whether you just modify on top of some stock um, product strongly depends on how deep in the scale you want to diverge from from that original system. Uh, this needs to be decided. So that's a very important thing and very important for decision makers here in my opinion is that also consider how is the qualification within your team. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the qualification to do these modifications
then there is no point in considering it, even if it's of strategic interest. Then you either have to consider hiring such people um, or you just stay with the stock even in that case because, I mean, if you don't have the competence within your team, uh, in the end you are just producing a mess if you try to uh, fiddle around there. That's absolutely fine. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it, it was a pleasure to have you here in the in the episode. It was a great benefit for us to get your insights. And yeah, it would be a pleasure to have you again sometime. Thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. That was my interview with Robert Chile. I'd love to hear from you. What's your experience with building the operating system or running your own tool train? Do you have out-of-stock systems in use? Or do you have started to build from scratch? Or are you using a highly individual approach somewhere in between? I'd love to hear from you. Please contact me. All the contact information is available at the website embeddedsuccess.com or you use the direct link to embeddedsuccess.com slash software building. I wanted to appreciate every feedback, even if it is the smallest one, everything is welcome. Now that I've given you some of the know-how and some of the ways to gracefully handle your embedded systems projects, it's time for you to take these details into your daily work for achieving your passion and finding success. I'm Georg Lohrer from the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. Thank you for listening.